Good evening, Redemption Tempe. Feel free to go ahead and take a seat. We good? All right. Um, well, welcome to First Wednesday. It is good to have you here, and also welcome to Redemption Tempe. My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here, and part of my role is to help oversee First Wednesdays. Um, in the past, we've done topics like politics, art, sports, creativity. Last month, we did power. And then our next couple of First Wednesdays in November, we're really going to have a focus on staying local. And then in December, we're going to focus on uh, going global. But tonight, the, our topic is beyond bumper stickers. We believe that all of life is all for Jesus, and therefore every aspect of God's world should be engaged and enjoyed and redeemed and pursued by his people, because it all belongs to him. Now, what's really important for us here is tonight we're actually taking a step back, and we're not looking at one particular aspect of culture like we typically do but we are looking at, we're taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture of what culture is and how Christians are called to interact with it. So for, for tonight, I just want to make a, you aware of a few things that we usually do on First Wednesday. Before they close the curtains over there, you'll see that we have an art gallery there. It's a little pop-up art gallery. Most of that art, I think all of that art is from people within this congregation. And so you can go in there and see some of the art that people in this congregation have created. And we thought it was very important to have some art, the work of the hands of this community for First Wednesday. So go check that out afterward. Um, another thing that we do in, during First Wednesdays is we will have short TED Talk style like type talks and a lot of different ways of communicating. Um, for water, you, you notice we have water on the table. Those are from compostable cups. We ask that you put those in the special, special compostable cup trash can in the back. The purpose is uh, when we did our first Wednesday on environmental stewardship, we concluded that we basically needed to get rid of water bottles and figure out a better way to do water. So that's how, what we're doing. In the future, feel free to bring a water bottle as well. Um, a few other things to, to point out to you. Um, books. We have a book table in the back. And we have a few books that are relevant to our talk tonight about culture. Uh, first, I want to recommend Visions of Vocation. This is by Stephen Garber, a guy I really respect. And if you're a person who's wondering, what am I supposed to do with my life? And, and, and how am I supposed to live out this calling that God has on my life? What has he made me for? This would be a good book to read and wrestle with. You're going to get it cheaper than Amazon. We're not making any money on this. The reason we do this is to get good books in your hands. The other one is Culture Making. Now, Culture Making is a book, if I were to say in my top five books, this would be two out of the five, actually. I love this book, Culture Making. Uh, by Andy Crouch, and it's on the topic of culture. And you will notice that much of this night and much of my thinking is actually shaped by the thinking of Andy Crouch and some of the stuff from this book. So I highly encourage you to get this book, Culture Making. Um, I have an announcement before we dive into the night. Uh, a really exciting event coming up next Thursday. 
If you've heard of Q, Q is an organization that really focuses on stimulating conversations about how Christians can advance the common good. Well, next Thursday evening at Redemption Gilbert, they're hosting a simulcast there where 60 different cities are going to come together, listen to some of the same speakers, and really reflect on what does it look like to pursue the common good of the city as Christians. Some of the speakers will be Tim Keller, Andy Crouch, Ann Voskamp. Um, we'll even have some local speakers. And, um, and I'll actually be emceeing a part of it mainly because I just wanted to, to be around that sort of thing. Q has shaped me profoundly, and I would encourage you to come to Q uh, next week. Q Commons Phoenix at Redemption Gilbert. And um, it's actually $29, but if you're a part of Redemption, there's a promo code that's Q Redemption, and you can actually get $9 knocked off of it. So um, please come and join us for Q next week. Now, this brings us to our topic of tonight, culture. Uh, Beyond bumper stickers, how should Christians engage in culture? And let me tell you a little bit about how we're going to frame the night. First, a definition. What is culture? You may think that we're talking about cross-cultural issues, and that is a part of it. But we want to step back and look at things a little bit bigger and to define culture a bit and and look at it from a bigger angle. So here's the definition of culture that we're going to be working from tonight. Culture is what we make of the world in two senses. First, on how we understand the world, how we, what we make of the world and understand what we see and encounter. This includes worldview, beliefs, a number of, of things like that. But also, it includes the physical things that we make of the world. Culture isn't just like Turkish culture or hipster culture or those sorts of things. Culture is chairs and cups and, and music the actual things that humans make of the world that take nature, God's gift of of creation, and cultivate it and make something out of it. This is an important task for Christians to reflect on, but we've struggled in the last hundred years. Over the last 2,000 years or so, Christians have had a profound impact on culture, creating things like hospitals and universities and, and schools and orphanages and these cultural institutions that have really seasoned life and and brought good to the world. But in the last hundred years, we've struggled. And there's been cultural tension in the U.S. as people have different opinions. And there's one iconic thing that we do to engage in cultural battles without putting any effort into it, and it's the bumper sticker. The bumper sticker is the quintessential object of making a point without making a difference. Now, if you have a bumper sticker, I'm not trying to insult you here. I've had bumper stickers in the past. I got rid of them so that I could do this talk. Um, But let's just look at a few bumper stickers. And so that's kind of the standard Christian Jesus fish thing. That's that's not a big deal. It's kind of nice. Revival's not going to break out because you saw a Jesus fish on someone's car. But you can kind of understand that someone's a Christian because of it. But then you get the counter to it, the Darwin Jesus fish that grows legs and evolves. And so you have this little battle of the Jesus fish. And then we have, then we have the American Jesus fish where you (laughs) slip the flag in there. And there are many variations of this Jesus fish, the Jesus, the great Jesus fish battle. So 
Then we get another one. This one's pretty uplifting. If babies had guns, they wouldn't be aborted. I, I don't think that works. I think that'd be, make for some dangerous uh, deliveries. So what else? Now we see the coexist. You see this one everywhere. And, and, and it's a nice little, little bumper sticker. It's, a, it's as if someone's going to look at it and say, wow, you know, all religions have symbols that seem to match up with letters that make the word coexist. We should have peace in the world. Uh, but it doesn't seem to work. So now we've got the... This person's pretty amped up about their political opinion. Every inch of the car covered with the Obama bumper sticker. Oh, this, one, this one's really interesting. Can you read it? It asks a profound question. What if the hokey pokey is what it's all about? Think about that. And then finally, this one perplexed me. If you want a stable relationship, get a horse. Now, I don't know how to take that one, but I would not be like to have that on my car. The bumper sticker. Now, most of us know that the bumper sticker doesn't change much, and it's not a big deal, and it, it's kind of fun and snarky, but um, over the last hundred years, Christians have taken four different postures toward culture. All four of them, as Andy Crouch argues in his book, and I'll argue tonight, are good as gestures, but not as postures. Postures you have all the time, gestures are something you do occasionally. But let's look at what those four ways that Christians have approached culture. First, we have condemn. So you can imagine the street preacher who's yelling at somebody for dancing or wearing cards, or, or not wearing cards, but playing cards, or listening to secular music or something like that. But Christians have condemned aspects of culture. Now, are there some things that need to be condemned, like sex trafficking or something like that? Absolutely. But that's not a good posture towards culture. Second, we have critique. And critique is this idea of analyzing culture and reflecting and, on the worldview and identifying what are the stories and, and the, the underlying assumptions. That's good for something like art, but that really doesn't change much or serve a lot of people beyond the realm of art. Um, then we have copying culture. Now, you've seen examples of this, like the t-shirt that instead of says Abercrombie and Fitch, it says, anyone know? A breadcrumb and fish. Instead of the Reese's shirt, it says the Jesus shirt. Um, and so we've seen those things before. I had an encounter when I was in high school where I was a football player and I listened to the Wu-Tang Clan all the time. And somebody came up to me on my football team and said, listen, if you like the Wu-Tang Clan, you will love DC Talk. I did not love DC Talk. Uh, so I think he might have been trying to de-evangelize me, actually. Um, and then finally, consume. And that's where most of us fall today. Most of us would have the posture of saying, I'm not thinking about culture. I'm not, I'm not copying culture. I'm not condemning it. I'm just consuming it. And that's the pattern of our world is consuming culture. Now, there are some aspects of culture, for instance, a fork, that it is fine to consume. But as a general posture, it is not enough to be a consumer of culture. 
So the question we're asking tonight and that we're going to address tonight is, what are the right postures that we should have toward culture as Christians? And how do we engage? So what you're going to encounter tonight is we're going to watch a short video. um, It's a fantastic uh, video series. We're going to watch one episode of a video series called For the Life of the World, which really addresses deep questions about culture. Second, Sean Mortensen is going to talk about being human and making culture, making culture and how that's a part of our humanness and how God created us. And then I'm going to talk about culture and the gospel story. And then we'll close with Q&A with uh, Amy Radcliffe and Ricardo Stewart also coming up on the panel. So that's what we have for tonight. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to give us a discussion question to discuss around the tables. Father, we ask that you would show us how to be faithful and wise and winsome and, uh, and worshipful in our engagement with all aspects of culture. God, we pray that we, we recognize that this is your world. And so uh, we ask that we would enjoy it, that we would push back against sin and the effects of the fall, and that you would give us just really practical, specific things that you want us to walk away with tonight. We thank you for the good gifts you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Around your tables, discuss what's one aspect of culture you enjoy the most. It could be a food or a CD or something like that. Just discuss it around your tables. Hi, guys. My name is Sean Mortensen. I'm pastor of Media and Communications with Redemption Church. Really excited to be here with you guys tonight. Uh, For what it's worth, I always kind of wanted, Jim, one of the Reese's Jesus shirts. I don't know why that one... Uh, I thought it was cool for some reason. I don't know why. That one in particular. Um, So here we go. Being human and making culture the broadest of all possible topics in 12 minutes. We'll see what we can get figured out. Here we go. Um, Humankind has been given a special position within creation. That's something you saw in that previous video. Uh, We've been created with purpose by a good and perfect God. And when he created us, he created us in his image, Scripture tells us something that can be said of no other being in the heavens or on the earth. And inherent in that special status is two things, really. A unique capacity and a unique calling. And our capacity is such that, among other things, like opposable thumbs, uh, we have things like uh, the ability to go beyond pure instinct. We are conscious of ourselves in, no, in a way that no other animal is. Uh, We consider our creator. We consider spiritual things. We reason complex thoughts. We weigh right and wrong. We imagine. We invent. We appreciate beauty. And this is a distinction that's captured uh, well in a quote that I really like from a movie that actually has quite a bit to say about culture, movie Ratatouille. And this is a quote from Remy who is a rat uh, going through a little existential crisis of his own. uh, And he makes this statement. He says, I know I'm supposed to hate humans, but there's something about them. They don't just survive, they discover, they create. I mean, just look at what they do with food. Remy the rat. And it is, of course, this heightened capacity that we have. It is, of course, a great capacity for good as well as for evil. And so with our capacity, our special capacity, comes a calling as well. And this calling can be found 
In Genesis 1, 27 through 28, I know this is a little small, I'll read it to you. This passage says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. To be the image of God in God's creation is to be God's ambassador in his creation. We are to exercise authority and dominion and care over what God has made. See, God creates humankind out of nothing. He forms us from the ground, and he places us in an untamed garden, and he calls us, humankind, man and woman, to make something out of the latent potential of his creation. Make something out of this garden, out of this untamed wilderness. And of course, we have this awesome command here to uh, get busy making babies, essentially, which is exactly what Be Fruitful and Multiply is talking about. But this command to fill the earth is actually more in connection with the command to subdue it than it is in connection to be fruitful and multiply. He's not really specifically talking about filling the earth with babies, right? Although, I don't know about you guys, my congregation, Arcadia, is doing a good job of that. We're doing our part. Um, But he's not talking about filling the earth with children as much as he's talking about filling the earth with activity and invention and expression as we make something of the world. And the purpose of filling it with these things is twofold. Two goals that we have, largely that we talked about in that video as well, two goals that we have that are integrally woven together and intertwined. We are to make something of creation for the glory of the creator who still holds ultimate authority and power. And we are to make something of creation for the shalom, which means peace and flourishing of his creation. God places humankind in this untamed wilderness in the garden, and he says, make something of it. Fill it with meaning and flourishing. This is called the cultural mandate of Scripture. And in the simplest, broadest terms, Jim already mentioned this, we can then define culture as what we make of the world. How we have filled the world, so to speak. So, for example, when we think of culture, if you were to go, let's say, on a vacation to a place like India, maybe you spend some time there, you may talk about having culture shock, or you may talk about having to get acclimated to a new culture. What are you talking about when you're talking about adjusting to culture. You're referencing the difference that you're experiencing in language, in architecture, in money, in food, transportation, entertainment, laws, social norms, all of these things that you're experiencing. You're saying, this is so different than what I know, than what I'm used to. I'm having culture shock. I'm having to get used to this culture. And all of these things are all the things that human beings put their hands to in order to bring order and meaning to life. It's what we fill the world with. And it's important for us to take note here that oftentimes we think of culture as a set of ideas or values or this sort of ethereal thing that's out there, this ethereal force of culture that's out there. And that's part of it, but culture is mostly a collection of tangible goods and activities. It's the work of our hands for the most part. And all of these elements of culture work together and impact one another in an incredibly intricate ecosystem. 
where they all impact one another. And we can see that even in our own cultures, right, where a trend in the food industry impacts people's uh, day-to-day schedule, where they all now want to wear Lululemon gear and go work out more and do yoga. And that impacts uh, the built environment because they all want to go to a different type of restaurant. It impacts the housing market, which impacts transportation patterns, which also impacts the economy, which impacts the way cities are built. All of these things are woven together and intertwined in this incredibly intricate ecosystem. And it would take an impossibly complex flowchart to map out how they actually impact one another. And in addition, as as, as we try to get our arms around what culture is and and how it works, um, it's important to realize that we can also draw boundaries around culture in different places. We can draw boundaries at different scales or in different time periods. So we can talk about culture, something as big and broad as the culture of the Western world, right? And we can talk about something as small as coffee culture, which I would guess actually in this place, coffee culture is not that small. It seems pretty dominant around these parts, but you get my point, right? We can have large, broad culture. We can have small culture. Um, And some have said that this word culture is the most complicated in the English English language to get a clean, clear definition of, and, and you can see why. Um, but culture is what we make of the world. That's the definition we're working with. And I would suggest as we think about this, and as we process what culture is, it actually becomes maybe even unhelpful to talk about this broad, nebulous thing, all-encompassing thing called culture, or the culture, which we often like to speak of. And it actually becomes more helpful and constructive to think about cultures, plural, that we're all individually a part of. The culture of my home, the culture of my circle of friends, the culture of my school, my workplace, the culture of my church, the culture of my gym. And here's the deal with the cultures that we're a part of. Two points mainly. We are transformed by our cultures for good or for bad, whether we think we are or not. We like to think of ourselves as sort of autonomous individuals that aren't impacted by anything. The truth is we are shaped profoundly by the cultures that we run in. And we also contribute to our cultures for good or bad, whether we think we do or not, or whether we want to or not. And here's the tricky thing. You can't opt out of this game. You can't decide, I don't really want to have an impact on the cultures that I'm in. I'd rather just kind of be a passive bystander. Here's the deal. To be anti-fashion is to make a fashion statement. You see what I'm saying? You can't opt out of the game. You're in the game, and you contribute to the cultures you're a part of for positive or for negative. So given these two realities, we have a couple options. We will either be passive participants in the cultures that we're a part of, passive participants tossed back and forth by the waves of our cultures and contributing in irresponsible, often harmful ways to them. Or we'll be culturally responsible people that take stock of the cultures that are shaping us, able to contribute with intentionality and purpose towards God's glory and the shalom of his creation. And I think the first step to being culturally responsible is being culturally aware. And so we ask ourselves, what does the culture that we have produced tell us about ourselves? And we get to this statement. Dutch theologian J.H. Bobbing says this, Culture is religion made visible. It is religion actualized in the innumerable relations of daily life. See, what we make of the world, 
will reflect what we believe about ourselves, about the meaning of it all, about where peace and joy are found. It's what we're making of the world. And is what we're making of the world glorifying our creator? Is it restoring shalom to creation? These are the questions that we ask ourselves. And if we realize that the cultures that we're a part of, whether as narrow as the culture of my family or as broad as the culture of upper middle class America, if we realize these cultures need to change, what then do we do? How do we go about bringing change? How do we change the landscape of things? Andy Crouch, one of the foremost thinkers on this, makes this statement, the only way to change culture is to make more of it. See, awareness is important, but it's not enough. Criticism and commentary have their place, but they're not enough. You can only change the flavor of the soup by adding more ingredients. You see what I'm saying there? It doesn't do much to keep going back over the ingredients or sitting staring at the pot analyzing it. Eventually, you have to add more ingredients to change the flavor of what's happening there. And what I like about this is that this is a proactive and optimistic posture towards culture. It's constructive and optimistic. And as Christians, we ought to be optimistic because we know how the story ends and we know who is ultimately in control and it's good news. Amen? We ought to be optimistic about culture. We don't need to be fearful and reactionary. We can be proactive and optimistic about it. This image in the back that you see is, of course, an image, if you can see it at all, it's an image of a project called the High Line in New York where some brilliant people converted an abandoned elevated subway line into a walkable park and garden. They created something new, redeeming something in the process, and they brought a picture of shalom to people's lives. And they expanded people's imaginations of what could be and what's possible. They changed the narrative of a place, the trajectory of a place. And this project is a wonderful picture of the last point I want to share to you. And it's a point that speaks to the posture with which we pursue change in the world. It's by Mako Fujimura, who's an artist, Christian, a thinker. And he says this, culture is not a war to be fought. It's a garden to be cultivated. Culture is not a war to be fought. It's a garden to be cultivated. And this quote takes us back to our original calling, a calling that requires care and patience and investment. And as they said in this video just now, sowing and tilling that does the work of preparing the way for the Lord. And as we engage culture, we need to remember as Christians, it's not about winning. It's not about winning. It's about creating, cultivating, and nurturing life for the glory of our creator, for the shalom of all creation. That's what we were called to do. That's what we were made to do. And in Christ, we're free to do it. There's much more to say, but I'm probably well over my time. So I'm going to stop now. Thank you, guys. Okay. If you could go ahead and draw your conversation to a close. Um, Before we bring the panel up, what the primary goal that I have is to give you four questions that you can use to ask to any aspect of culture and to analyze it through the lens of the biblical story. You see, I want us to walk away from tonight with the ability to look at anything, whether it's Instagram or chicken tikka masala, and be able to do some theological reflection on it. So here are the four questions I'm going to give you that you can ask to any aspect of culture, and it will help you have 
a nuanced, um, positive, but also understanding the brokenness of the world perspective on the aspects of culture. So here are your four questions. How can I celebrate and cultivate the goodness of the world? Two is, how can I mourn and mend the brokenness of the world? Three, how does the gospel free me from the world, for the world? And four, how can I reimagine the world? Now, these are not four random questions I came up with, but these four questions are rooted in, in each act of the biblical story. There are four real major acts in the biblical story that are represented by, by, the, by the paintings we have back here. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And that really is, in short form, the story of the Bible. The four acts, and each one of these four acts gives us a unique lens to look at the world, to have a nuanced deep understanding of any aspect of culture. So take these four questions, get something in your mind now that you want to reflect on. Maybe it's chicken tikka masala. I highly encourage you to develop a theology of chicken tikka masala. Uh, or maybe it's Facebook or something like that. And I'll walk you through each of these questions and how they flow from the biblical story. So the first question, how can I celebrate and cultivate the goodness of culture? That comes from creation. That's exactly what Sean has just been talking about and beautifully articulating. But in the beginning, God created the world. He created it good. He created it with him as the center. And trees and everything from sequoias and salamanders belongs to him. And he calls it what? Good over and over and over. And who are we to disagree with God? He put an original goodness in this world that even though there's sin and brokenness, you can't be, your sin isn't more powerful than God's original creation and goodness. Therefore, when we look at any aspect of culture, there is always a kernel of goodness, of beauty, of truth that remains because it's a part of God's creation and it was made by culture makers, you and I. So everything from chicken tikka masala to the iPhone to airplanes to... Here, I don't understand this. Steampunk? I don't get it. What is that? But somehow there's a kernel of goodness in that. Uh, I... I, I'm not enough of a theologian to figure it out, but there's something there. And so with anything, we can ask that question. And this, ha this question has two dynamics, both celebrating and cultivating. That Christians, I honestly believe, should be the most celebratory people in the world. We are known for the things in culture we do not like. And I think some of the things that we do not like are fair. When you say sex trafficking is bad... When you say beating up women is bad, that you should be able to speak boldly on those things. But we should not be the people who are primarily known for what we're against because we live in a world of filled with God's goodness. We should be people who are known for affirming the most stuff. For instance, if someone said something really nice to you on Facebook, it should be the sense that someone said, oh, that must be a Christian because they're always looking for good stuff. But that's not where we are. So any aspect of culture, we can ask, uh, how can I celebrate and cultivate the goodness of that? 
Then we go to the fall and we ask the question, how can I mourn and mend the brokenness of the world? See, we realize that sin is in the world. In Genesis 3, we see that sin enters in the world and humans rebel against God. And it sets off a domino effect that affects the whole world. Our spiritual lives, our social lives, our physical lives are filled with brokenness. The great God who gave us culture, we, we take it as a gift but then we say, no, thank you, God. I'll take this gift and I'm going to worship it. Then we take, we, we make culture in a way that harms people created in his own, own image, physically and socially. And so no matter what it is within culture, Instagram or chicken tikka masala or steampunk or whatever it is, there will be brokenness because of sin. And when we see that brokenness, we're called to mourn it. We need to mourn things. We need to be people who don't just yell about things, but really feel deep in our hearts the sadness of a broken world. For instance, we we need to be the people who, when we hear about Lindsay Lohan going to jail again, are not people who view that as entertainment and laugh at her, but mourn for her. Not saying a snarky thing on Facebook or laughing at a YouTube video, but mourning for her and caring for her but also seeing the brokenness in the world and seeking to mend it. So much of, of the world, all, all aspects of culture are good things that are essentially twisted and, and distorted by sin. For instance, take music. Music is amazing. God gave us the gift of sound, the gift of language, the, the, the ability to play instruments and make instruments, and a whole history and tradition of culture makers in music. We should shiver with gratitude for all that God has extended to us and given to us in music. And it is a good gift. And you listen to music, and music is amazing because it's one of the few things in the world that can make you cry without even punching you. It's pretty amazing. But then we take something like music and we distort it and we shun God with it. We give God the middle finger with it. I don't know what it is. Every time I hear a Drake song, I like it. Like, I like the way it sounds. I start bobbing my head almost immediately. But do you ever notice when you start listening to the words of some of these things? They're absurd. Let me read you some of Drake's lyrics. Let me read you some of this. I can't say, I can't say everything that's in here. If I slip up, sorry. But here's the thing I noticed about Drake's l- lyrics. When you take away the music, they sound like a narcissistic third grader. <laughs> it says this. It's from his song, God Everything. He says, God Everything. I got everything. I cannot complain. I cannot. I don't even know how much money I made. I forgot. It's a lot. <laughs> Never mind what I got. And then he comes and he says, come up, that's all me. Stay true, that's all me. No help, that's all me, all me for real. And I said, if there was ever a, a first Wednesday where I was going to start a rap feud with Drake, it's this one. Because that is not true. Drake is using the words and the language that God gave him and the beautiful gift of sound that God gave him in the world that is centered around God and looks to God and says, it's all me. 
And that is sin and the distortion. And so with everything, we look and we say, how can I mourn and mend the brokenness of culture? But then it brings us to redemption. And in the biblical narrative, redemption, there's a whole history of redemption that culminates in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The Jesus who entered into culture. He didn't shun culture. He entered in and lived a perfectly righteous life. Who died and who died for our sins, the sins we commit within culture, to free us from the bondage of idolatry that we find ourselves in. And he was resurrected as the first fruits of a new creation, a creation filled with culture. And what the gospel does is it frees us from the world for the world. In other words, how often are we enslaved to cultural things in the world? And we need to be set free from those things. 93 million selfies a day are taken. 93 million. And I think that shows that so many of us are caught up and enslaved to finding an identity through social media. And what the gospel does is it says, no, Jesus is your identity. And he frees you from that. So not so that you can go run and hide from social media, but that you can engage in it in a self-sacrificing, self-giving way. It's no longer about you and your identity and your narcissism. It's about others. In other words, this sounds cheesy, Trust me, it's cheesy. But Christians should be the people who start the othery, not the selfie. That we're just always going around snapping pictures of all the good things that other people are doing and honoring them because the gospel has set us free from our bondage to self-centeredness to be about self-giving love. And finally, the restoration, the future day when Jesus comes and restores all things and makes all things new wipes away every tear from the eye, and makes things right like they should be. That day's coming, and that day, when we imagine that day, can shape how we live now to help us reimagine the world. So to any aspect of culture, we can ask, how can I reimagine the world? What does this look like? Well, for example, about a year ago, a few of us were watching TV, and we saw that there was a bike gang that almost beat a guy to death. And it began, I began to ask this question, how can I reimagine the mob mentality for the common good? So when you see a bunch of motorcycle uh, gang guys and they beat someone up, there's something powerful about the mob mentality. So we started something called the Tempe Bike Gang, where about 40 of us nerds were on bikes, we're riding around the city but with this mob mentality, but we go into restaurants and we pay for people's meals, and we go to dog parks and we pick up dog poop, and we go to unsuspecting people's houses and we give them the awesome front yard award, and we do these sorts of things to reimagine the world in the light of the gospel, to reimagine something even like the mob mentality. Or in Arizona, can we reimagine the, the way that our homes are structured. So much of the architecture in Arizona is built around individualism with big backyards in the back, high cinder block walls, and no interaction in the front yard. But in the kingdom, when Jesus restores all things, we can imagine there being culture and people interacting with each other in a closer way. And I know some people who have worked hard to say, no, we'll put front porches in the front of the house. 
and we'll build things. And you can imagine, how can you put things like gardens and barbecues and porches and build those things in the front of the house to reimagine the world in the light of the kingdom? And you can take anything from chicken tikka masala to Instagram and reimagine it in light of the gospel. So those, those are the four questions. The four questions are, how can I celebrate and cultivate the goodness of the world? How can I mourn and mend the brokenness of the world? How does the gospel free me from the world, for the world? And how can I reimagine the world? So I want you to just take a few moments around your table and share with each other what's one aspect of culture that you want to reflect deeper on and, um, and ask these four questions too. So go ahead now and decide what that one thing is and discuss and we'll come up in just a moment and we'll have a time of question and answer. Okay, let's go ahead and uh, get started with the, the text-in questions. Um, I'm going to go ahead and introduce the two panelists that we've added. You already know Sean and I. Um, but before I introduce them, Katie, can you go ahead and talk about the text-in questions and what they need to do? Sure. So what you need to do is you need to text all of life to the number that's up on the screen. screen reply why to confirm, and then send your question. All of life, write that again, and then your question. Okay? So text all of life to the number, text yes to confirm, and then send your question beginning with all of life. All right. Well, um, a few things. One, I want to let you know I have a a friend, Michelle Duarte, who um, we were going to have do something with the night, and what we decided was he's he's a leader in Brazil, and we're actually going to take some of the questions that aren't answered tonight, and he and I are going to do a video interview. So be looking for that. I thought it would be good to get a global perspective on these questions as well. Uh, but we've added two people to the panel. We've got Ricardo Stewart. You probably know him. He's the lead pastor of Redemption Tempe. Um, I thought it would be really important to, uh, to bring him up here for a couple of reasons. One is because he's a sharp dude, likes to think about culture. Um, he, he's been involved with education. He's uh, um, connected with, with football at ASU and, and a chaplain there. And so he's going to be able to speak to some things. Also, we have Amy Radcliffe here, who's a part of the congregation. She's a member here. And she was recently, um, recently named as one of the top 100 creatives in the Phoenix area. So, yeah. And... And basically, basically, if you want to know what it takes to do that, you have to hold kale and a little bird and just walk around all the time. So, so my first question is actually for Amy. In her interview with the New Times, she said that a lot of, of creative people feel compelled to move to places like Chicago and San Francisco and other places, New York, that are known for creativity. But she said, no, many people need to stay here in Arizona and develop the creativity of this place. Would you tell us why you think that, Amy? Well, um, and hold it close. Sorry. Um, I think, uh, I'm not sure if Sean touched on this, but something also in Andy Crouch's book that he emphasizes a lot is um, that to... Uh, be a part of our culture and to create more, we have to cultivate and create. Um, and so I think with cultivation, you have to commit. And so I don't know, that's something that I think I've seen a lot. Um, 
in the creative scene in Tempe and in, in the greater Phoenix area is people that have these great ideas and have um, the ability to contribute and to create new things and add to um, a thriving and growing culture, but they, they don't invest in it here. Um, and I'm a big fan of here. And so I think that that's something that, I, I don't know when the question in the article was, um, what does Phoenix need more of? And I think that's, that's what we need more of. We need more commitment. And um, in order to actually have an influence on your culture, I think you have to stay and invest. And it's not always pretty and it's not always easy. Um, it takes a lot of laboring. Um, but I think that that's part of what we're called to. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of why I answered it that way, I guess. That's great. Do we have any questions yet? All right. Well, this is a good one to start with. I'm still hazy on what culture is. Can you talk through that a bit more? Maybe give us some examples. Jim, do you want to take that? Sure. Um, so like, like Sean said, it's probably the most difficult concept to define, but actually the most, the easiest to experience. Um, that idea of culture is what we make of the world. I like that definition a lot because there's both a visible and invisible aspect to culture. There are invisible things, things that we believe, that corporately we believe. Like as Christians, uh, we, we believe, um, we believe Jesus is Lord. And that's, that's a shared belief that we have. Um, there, there are other invisible values. Like, for instance, American time culture is such to where, you know, you, you show up about five minutes early. If you're five minutes late, it's not an impardonable sin. But other, uh, other places have different concepts of time. So there's an invisible aspect of culture, but there's also the visible we tend to think too hoity-toity when it comes to culture, that you're only engaging in culture if you're like drinking fine wine and you're listening to Mozart. Uh, that is not it. Ev everything that humans take out of nature and cultivate, that's culture. So chairs are culture. Joe's barbecue is culture. Um, steampunk is culture. Um, all, those, all those things. Do you want to add anything to that? No. All right. <laughs> Ricardo's a huge steampunk guy. You wouldn't know it, but... I, I, don't, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I don't either, man. It's crazy. Yeah. I wonder how many phones right now are Googling. Yeah. Who knows what, what steampunk is, is, by the way? All See, right. there's some. What, what, just someone, Tyler, if you can yell it out, what is... What is it called? Steampunk? Yeah. What is steampunk? <laughs> <laughs> It's like culture. <laughs> like Idlewild with that uh, Outcast was in? Oh, there we go. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yep. Looks I thought it might be interesting, Amy, if you could kind of give examples of a couple of the cultures you're in, because, you know, we have you up here kind of as an artist, but you're actually a part of a lot of different cultures, so maybe that would help us to see. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really broad, so the first things that come to mind when you ask me which cultures I'm in, I mean, 
I think of like my work, so I'm in the customer service industry, um, and then I have another job where I'm in the behavioral health industry, and so uh, there's the culture of a restaurant, you know, what you expect when you come in, what you expect the um, servers uh, to say to you or how they treat you, um, that's part of culture. Um, and I mean, even to the point of like social media culture, um, you know, from Facebook and Instagram, um, there, there's an expectation when you contribute something that you'll get something in response. Um, that's part of the culture of social media. Um, it can be broken down into a lot of different things, I think. And, and I'll just say, the, more, the smaller you get, the more meaningfully you can engage. If you're thinking American culture or global culture, you're, you're, there's not a lot of meaningful ways, but if you're talking about the culture of your home or your neighborhood or the place where you work, you can engage in more meaningful ways, I think. So if you can do the next question. Next question. Cultivation and creation of culture are words that have been thrown a lot tonight. But how can we actually do it? What can I do? Hmm. Sean, would you want to take that? Sure. Well, I, I think, again, it's important to remind ourselves that uh, we're speaking of culture in broader terms than like art, arts and entertainment which is oftentimes how we think of culture. Uh, and so sometimes we may th fall into the trap of thinking cultivating and creating culture means supporting local arts communities or having arts shows or things like that. Um, uh, as people are describing, like, the restaurant culture, there's um, different dynamics of every culture that you're in. We talked about time expectations. We talked about uh, the way people organize a calendar. We talked about how we... Uh, organize our homes. Uh, th there's so many aspects of culture that we can uh, touch and experience and impact. And so uh, really, honestly, the possibilities are endless for cultivating and creating culture. Um, cultivating really is kind of uh, uh, setting the table for culture to grow and um, fueling it as best you can. Uh, it's doing soil work, to use another metaphor, to continue the metaphor. You're, you're sort of preparing the environment. Um, so you are um, trying to think of a good example to hang all this on. Um, you know, so if I'm cultivating and creating culture in my home, for example, uh, I am uh, thinking in advance about um, our week as a family and how we spend our time. And I'm planning events for us to share, shared experiences. Uh, and I'm thinking about uh, our diet and what our uh, meal time is like. And I'm looking at things that are getting in the way of those experiences that we really want to create, that we think will be rich additions to our life. And so I'm looking to create a certain culture in my home. Uh, and then I'm looking at what helps fuel those, what helps make those things possible, um, sort of weeding out the garden if there are things that get in the way of that. Um, preparing, uh, saving money, things like that that allow it to happen. Uh, so those are kind of the two dynamics, cultivating and then creating. Um, but really, I would say, uh, as you look at whatever cultures you're in, um, there are endless opportunities for you to contribute, uh, both in preparing for things and then actually making things happen. I think, too, with that, something that the movie or the little film that we watched touched on is um, that what we have is a gift, 
Um, and so in, in the idea of cultivating and um, trying to cultivate what it is that we already have, I think we need to recognize the gifts that we have. Um, and that doesn't mean that, um, I, I feel like there's this expectation that in order to be influential, you have to have some platform um, or you know some, some ability to reach the masses. And that's not true at all. As Jim was saying, you're more influential the smaller the realm or sphere of culture is. And so with that, I think, um, look at your environment, look at the sphere that you're working from and recognize the gifts that God's giving you, um, the things that he's already prepared in you um, and how he made you, and then look at the, the, the environment that he's also given you because that's also a gift. Um, your talents and your skills are gifts and then where he's placed you is a gift. And so I think for us, it's a challenge of um, finding how to use what we have in the place that we've been Put. I think that's what Jeremiah is all about, is um, flourishing um, in the city that we've been exiled into. And so I think that's our challenge. You know, it's not easy. It's not natural when it's uncomfortable. I, I think one of the key areas, just to get really specific, would be education. Um, that right now there are a ton of, there, there are needs for teachers in Arizona. And there are a lot of vacancies. There are a lot of challenges within the educational system. And so just thinking very specifically, what are the things I can create and cultivate that encourage teachers, that support the good that's already happening in certain schools? Would you speak to anything about how you can, um, I know you were in uh, education for, for a bit, how could be, people be culture makers in relation to our, our schools that are, are having a hard time right now? So the first thing that comes to my mind is depending on where the school is at. And so what they do for the most part, or at least... 10 years ago when I graduated from college, is um, when you get trained, I did elementary education with my undergrad, and you get trained to teach in a certain classroom. However, most of the jobs that are available are not in neighborhoods that are socioeconomically right for the way they teach you. They say things like, oh, then you'll have a parent help you with this, and another parent will help you with this. And it's like, they got one parent, that parent's working, and so we don't have this situation. So I think part of it is, is um, there's a lot of flexibility in the more and more I realize that people have jobs of flexibility, meaning they're, they may work at different hours. So one way to be able to help cultivate an education and be able to support the teachers is to join a PTA, maybe if you're not even a parent, um, to be able to help in the classroom, become a teacher's aide, go through the certification for that. That's, that's a way. And if you're going, I, I got the flexibility, but I also need the income, I do believe that one of the ways is if you have, an, if you have a, a degree, you could become a substitute teacher. Um, but I think in any ways of aiding... Um, prayer for teachers, yes, but also like in tangible ways. The schools in our neighborhoods, just around here for the most part, they will run out of things like paper. Um, and so you'll get an email from Tempe High School or the church will get an email from someone we know that works at Tempe High or at McClintock High and they just need paper. Um, just whatever could, could uh, aid the teacher um, in wanting to stay there longer. Um, in the same way that many of us who are not from here. So my wife and I are not from Arizona. What helps us want to be here longer is not, definitely not May to October. Um, what helps us want to be here longer is the people that have come alongside us. Amy, that's another area of culture that you're in, is nanny. <laughs> Amy's got 16 jobs, and she's great at all, all of them. Um, but the reality of it is the people that have come alongside us have helped us even have more of a desire to be here and aid us um, in, in the roles that we have. And I think it's very similar to teachers and the public school, charter school system uh, here in Arizona to be able to find out ways to be able to aid the teachers. 
That's great. The one thing I kept hearing in, in everything you were all saying was intentionality. And maybe mm -hmm. I'm wrong, but perhaps it's a part of we are not going to change culture if we're just being reactive to mm -hmm. it. That was really great. What is your take on the impact of the internet on our culture? My quick <laughs> response, as the internet is very quick, is uh, it just makes everything happen so fast. And so that's really good in a lot of areas. In some areas, it's really bad. And so we can easily go to the dangers and, and things like that. So in one way, I think what the internet has done is given us a wealth of information and knowledge and have been able to connect us with people globally far better than we could have ever been connected before. Uh, some of you can recall, and maybe they still do this, you'd have like these pen pals where you would have, we, and I remember in third grade, we would write letters to third graders in Illinois and then they would write back to us and that was kind of cool. Well, now you could just Skype and see them and, and fly. I mean, it's just, with the internet, you could just, you could see them right there and, and clearly from the video, they can hand you things through the screen. And, uh, <laughs> It's just crazy now, right? <laughs> so that's one. On the, on the other side of it, what I see personally is there's, there's a really good book called The Information Diet. And it talks about how we have more information now than ever. And yet we need to, under, we need, just like we need to watch what we intake, what we eat, we also need to be careful and wise about what we intake um, on the internet. And that's just not, you know, everyone wants to go to the pornography thing. That's just information just to have information. And so... Um, the, ten, the intentionality is for, for the Christian is just to guard your heart. And, and that's not for everybody to do the same thing. But personally for myself, I realized Facebook was doing something to me that was not good um, because of my own heart. I don't think, I think people should be on Facebook. But for me in this season, it was, I couldn't do it. Um, it was, I felt like it gave me expectations. I was getting people that would email me serious questions on what I thought was like a a fun thing to have, and then when I didn't get back to those serious questions, none of you guys in this room, um, uh, then it was like, why didn't you answer? Like, I didn't even see him, or I would get invited to things, because people invite people on Facebook, and I never paid attention to those things, and I would miss key things, and I thought, you know what, this is emotionally, like, screwing with me, and so I need to, I need to uh, step back from this, and so I think every, it makes it really fast, and everything accessible, um, which is really good, on some instances, in some instances, it could be kind of detrimental. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you guys, but I definitely had a thought of, I think I need to start like a pen pal with some random email, you know, <laughs> see, see what I could get going there. <laughs> Do we have another question? Why are all... It's <laughs> 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 a good one. <laughs> Why are all Christian movies so terrible? Sean. <laughs> all right. So um, there's a guy, the president of uh, King's College in New York, Gregory Thornberry, has this quote where um, he says, Christian is the greatest of all possible nouns and the lamest of all possible adjectives. And... <laughs> I think in large part that's true. Um, it doesn't have to be that way, but I think unfortunately for us in American culture, it is that way. Uh, I think in large part because as soon as, as soon as that becomes the target of what we're creating, um, we're shooting for a very narrow target that includes kind of uh, acceptable, safe forms of expression, safe uh, language. Um, and, and there's not much room to, to get outside of that. 
And I think inherently when you start a creative project and you're so limited and it's expected to be so sterilized, um, it, it just undermines the creative process in itself and, and we get the products that we get. Uh, however, uh, people keep going to them. And so um, that's why they continue to be terrible because someone's making money on them. If no one was making money on them, they wouldn't, they wouldn't keep making them. So that's part of it. And uh, we need to look ourselves in the mirror for that one. But um, I, I, I would say that for me, that's the biggest thing. If, if you're starting out saying we're going to make uh, a Christian movie that's marketed to Christians, I think, unfortunately, in American culture, that means you have just a very narrow target. Um, so, I, I would just piggyback on that and, and just realize that some of it's generational, you know? So what I, what I don't want to do is just, like, laugh at all the terrible Christian movies or if they're terrible, because there's many of you in this room would go, I have no idea what you guys are laughing at. I love those movies, right? <laughs> and so I want to be cognizant of that because some of it is generational, and sometimes it's what people are looking for. And, um, and it works for them. And um, I know this, my, my, uh, my in-laws like, will always recommend these movies that they are, like, they're the greatest movies in the world to them. And I know what I'm going to get. And, um, but at the same time, I don't want to knock their hustle either. You know, because the reality of it is, our kids are going to look at what we did in some areas and go, what were they thinking? And so it's both and. I do think there is a lack of, um, integrity may not be it, but um, I think there's a lack of, creativity and there's a lot of copycatting and and it's uber evangelistic so when a generation that believe that everything you do in the name of jesus has to be able to lead people to jesus you're going to get movies like that but if we understand something that we've been talking about here or these guys are talking about something called cultural discipleship cultural discipleship is not to get the culture saved but cultural discipleship is to steward everything in such a way that it begins to reflect its God-given talent, its God-given originality, and so forth. And so you may be a public school teacher teaching biology, and you would teach in such a way in a broken world that what you do begins to more reflect who God is and where God has taken history. It may not save a kid, but there's something very beautiful about that. Um, you creating God's image and taking the raw materials of culture and creation and making something beautiful in teaching, making something beautiful in the food you make. And in this case, making something that's beautiful in the movies that you make um, in such a way that I would say honors um, that particular economy, if we use a language from, from the movie or that, that we watched earlier. So Yeah. And I, I want to say, as I was just sitting here thinking about it, um, just a addendum to what I said, and we may as well substitute Christian art for Christian movies. Um, I want to be careful as we consider our posture towards these things um, that we remain humble. And um, I think sometimes the pursuit of cultural sophistication can be a, a prideful pursuit. Um, and I say that really believing that Christians need to be more culturally sophisticated. Um, but I think sometimes uh, that pursuit itself can be a part of our identity and we can start to see ourselves as better than others. And in doing so, we can look back on our former time or our former community or something in judgment. Um, and sometimes maybe even we, we lose our first love, if that makes sense. So for me, when I was first a believer in college, I mean, I, I can think back driving in my car and I'm like pumping my fist and like weeping to what I look back on now is really bad worship music, right? Uh, but 
that was a sweet time for me. That was a sweet time for me. And, and in a sense, uh, I kind of miss that time. And, and I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose that heart. I don't want to lose that tenderness. I don't want us to. I think we can um, move towards uh, cultural awareness and cultural sophistication uh, without being hardened and arrogant and judgmental. And I would just give that word of warning as, as we have this conversation. We are going to continue with Q&A for about 10 more minutes, um, but it is 8, o- 8 o'clock, so any parents in here who need to get their kids, feel free. You can go get them now. Um, um, Steampunk. Uh, and uh, you can even bring them back in here if you'd like. So We do have a lot of questions, so we'll keep going with the questions now that we all know what steampunk is. What is that? <laughs> all right. How would you decide whether or not to participate in and or consume something in culture, entertainment, celebration, etc.? Jim, why don't you take that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, here's, here's really what I think is, is important is we tend to drift towards naive optimism where we affirm everything or cynicism where we just point out the, the, the bad in everything. Uh, or... And here's what a lot of people do is run. You run and retreat away from things. Um, so I think the main, the, those four questions I asked uh, I think are pretty important because we need to be able to affirm uh, the good, the true, and the beautiful within every aspect of culture. Even take something like this. Take something like pornography. The, there is good, that, true, and beauty within not pornography, but what it was intended to be, which is sex. Sex is a gift from God. Um, and, and there is something to be affirmed about, it, about that. Now, that needs to be redeemed, and so that sex is only for uh, those who are part of marriage. But then there's something very broken about that, obviously, that it's twisted and distorted, used for people, for entertainment. I would almost say, I'm going to throw this out here. This is just a bomb. U- UFC? by the way, I feel like is, is to strength what sex is to pornography, by the way. Um, but I think all of us with those, with those things, there's, a good, there's good, true, and beautiful, and there's brokenness. But the, we have to ask questions of, will this lead me into sin? Um, do I have the particular uh, faith to be able to engage in this in a God-glorifying and others-loving way? Uh, will this lead others into sin? Is this promoting something that's doing significant damage to others? And here's what I would say. Wrestle with things. There's some things that are obvious. Pornography is wrong. UFC is a little more gray. Um, you just switched. Because earlier, yeah. basically, you said it was... Yeah, it's true. <laughs> uh, um, Okay, UFC is not gray. I was throwing you a bone, you meatheads out there. So, uh, uh, and and I would say, but then but then there are other things with what kind of movies uh, uh, we engage in, and a number of those things. Here's what I would say: there are a lot of things that you need to actually wrestle a little bit deeper with, instead of just saying yes or no. But there's a better question of how and when, and what good does it do for others, and how does it give glory to God. And just do some deeper work with that. For deep theological discussions about UFC, Jim will meet you in the back alley after First Wednesdays. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
How do you contribute to culture within the context of a mundane job? What might that look like? Ooh, that's great. Amy, maybe one of your jobs is mundane, and maybe you could give us some examples. Hopefully your bosses aren't in here, but... <laughs> All of my jobs are interesting. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think you have to look at what the culture is of the monotony. So even if it's something that's the same every day, that is the culture. The culture is that it's consistent and that, um, you know, you walk into your job with a certain level of expectation for what um, you'll see that day. And um, for me, with one of my jobs... Um, there's a lot of doing the same thing over and over, and it can be really boring. It could be um, difficult to be motivated or passionate about it. Um, but um, there, for me, with you know that particular example, a lot of the challenge um, I find is my attitude and my heart attitude um, in it, and how I'm working out of whatever that attitude is. Um, if I'm just watching the clock waiting for the day to be done, um, it's going to go really slow and I'm going to miss opportunities. Um, and so I think even if it's the same, even if it's boring, um, hopefully you're working with people. You might not be. I don't know. Um, but if you're working with others, um, there's a culture, um, even an, a coworker culture that you can cultivate. Um, a lot of times for a lot of us in mundane jobs, it's a very negative culture just out of the nature of it because m most of your coworkers are feeling that way too, that it's um, the same thing day in and day out. And so um, cultivating the relationships that you have in that work environment. Um, and for me, you know, sometimes you don't even have the opportunity to do that. Um, at the restaurant, I roll a lot of um, forks and knives and napkins for long periods of time. Um, Shelby knows what I'm talking about. And um, that could be really mundane, but I think um, taking opportunities and not missing them um, and something that I constantly have to remind myself um, is that I'm here for service. Um, and not just at my serving job, but here on earth, like I'm here to serve. And it's really easy to get self-centered about um, our jobs and wanting them to be convenient or um, to be doing something that we like, but sometimes we don't do things we like, um, but we're, we're still given the opportunity to serve. Um, and not just our bosses and our coworkers, but like our service in our job is us serving our creator. And I miss that a lot of times because we're so motivated by working for man's approval and acceptance. And um, I want to do my job well because I want to please God. And um, I think that you can do that in monotony. It's more challenging and it's less interesting. You have less um, exciting stories to tell, but I think you can still do it. Again, it comes from a place of intentionality, I think. If I can add, I think one of the most important things, and this, I pray for this often for our congregation, is that we need to cultivate a deeper sense of gospel imagination and reimagining uh, and reframing everything we do in the world. For instance... When you are, if you clean toilets every day, that may seem like a monotonous job, but you should think of that because of the biblical story as microbiological spiritual warfare, where you, where you are, you are killing, uh, you are sanitizing toilet seats and killing microbes that could potentially harm another image bearer, and you are protecting them from the potential effects of the fall. So stuff like that, 
could re reshape the way you engage your work. And if let me let me put it this way: if you got a job that you think is mundane, come find me and we'll imagine it together. This is why I. This is like my best friend right here. Like, there's nothing you can ever do that Jim has not always thought of a cosmic redemptive way to be able to. Like, you feel, that, that's awesome. I was gonna say if you're doing that job, it's a crappy job. <laughs> yeah. Our next question, are we sacrificing evangelism for this cultural evangelism? If a teacher does good things that glorify God, but kids aren't saved, then what? It's a great question. It's a great question, and I'm going to try to answer this really, really short. So I got saved. I, to me, all that matters is sharing people about Jesus. I don't, the, everything else is a means to, to an end, a means to an end. I'll feed you, I'll clothe you, only if you get a chance to hear the gospel, because that's what matters the most, is that you're saved. Okay, there is nothing wrong with wanting people to get saved. In fact, we should want people to understand and know God. What we need to do um, historically is back up and going, okay, where did this whole language of getting saved, and when did we begin as a culture to make that the most primary thing? Has it always been this way historically? And the truth is, it hasn't. We read in our culture into everything because we have taken most of what we do and we have this um, unnecessary divide between secular and sacred. That's what we're always trying to push and saying there's no, uh, there's no divide in that. But even in our own country, to kind of do a brief overview, there was a movement um, about 100 years ago or so called the social gospel. And the social gospel where people were looking at um, the poor, looking at needs, were like social justice issues, and meeting those needs, and they were doing it at the exclusion of talking about Jesus and about the blood and the propitiation and our need to believe and have faith in him. So there were a group of other people who said, wait a minute, we're losing the gospel. We need to go back to the fundamentals. Like, what are the fundamentals of the faith? And let's preach justification, saved by faith, saved by faith. And if we do those good deeds, good, but let's make sure we major on the fundamentals. Um, a name to throw out there would be D.L. Moody. And so if you guys have heard of Mo Moody Bible Institute, that was started from there. Um, a probably more derogatory name would be fundamentalism. And the fundamentals did that. And so they highly, highly recommend, um, focused on evangelism, the, God, the word of God, and sharing the gospel. And that became number one at, um, at the expense of cultural engagement. And that's what most of us became saved in. That's what most ministries were started up. Most of the ministries, we, uh, whether it's Young Life, whether it's Crew, most of the churches, whether it's a Calvary Chapel, most of what we came out of, unless you're Presbyterian um, and maybe Lutheran, came out of that background that basically saw one um, at the exclusion of the other. So what I would say is, to this question is, are we sacrificing, one, I don't know what um, evangelism, I get this, yeah, are we sacrificing evangelism for the cultural evangelism? Um, there's a difference. We're saying cultural discipleship. Culture can't be saved unless they're people. Discipleship in itself is, when we say cultural discipleship, it is tilling the ground in such a way that people are more receptible to understand the gospel. Forty years ago, what my grandfather would tell you, if you were sleeping with your girlfriend and you, weren't, you, know, you guys weren't married, someone would come to you and say, that sin, you knew it. There was no argument. There was no, I think it's beautiful. You knew it. So repent and believe in Jesus. Done deal. Nowadays, we talk to our friends, people in this room, people that even love Jesus oftentimes. Hey, you know, you're having sex outside of marriage. That's a sin. What's sin? Because the culture has massively changed. And there was a moment where we, meaning we Christians, had a kind of, not a dominant in the culture, but the culture pretty much had a theistic understanding, whether it was Judeo-Christian, 
um, so forth, that there was a right and wrong, there was a God, there were absolutes. We don't live in that culture now. And so a lot of what the cultural discipleship does, it's, it's breaking up the soil that doesn't save people, but does begin to, the preparatory work of people's hearts to understand it. So you take a movie, The Book of Eli. The Book of Eli wasn't a movie that saved people, but there were some, there were some cultural, biblical nuggets in that, book, in that movie that made people think. Now, it wasn't um, facing the giants where the team gets saved and they win the stinking championship, right? But it was enough to be able to go, most people are going to engage at that level and go, man, this man's conviction over this sacred text called the Bible um, mattered. And so I don't think it's an either or. If a rock is coming down on a person, I'm not going to make sure they're eating green and that they're, they're taking care of themselves. I'm going to say, you need Jesus. If the plane's going down, I'm not talking about how to be the best biology teacher. I'm talking about Jesus. Our theological conviction in the understanding of the gospel, of God saving sinners, and he uses us, I don't have, I'm not as worried about people going to hell because I believe in a sovereign God who's not going to lose his people. He loves us too darn much. I also believe in that process, I have to proclaim Jesus Christ. I also need to, um, Jesus says, be salt and light. Salt in itself for the time in which it was written, was to preserve that which was good. Not just share the gospel, preserve that which was good. That's creation. Light in itself, it shines light in dark places. That's, that's social justice as it, in the culture, as well as it is in people's hearts to understand their need of a savior. So I don't think that it's at the expense. I just don't think that we should go um, either or, but it's a both and to be fully Christians and recover I would say the, the understanding of the full gospel and the whole gospel of the whole church to the whole world. And I, there's so much more to say on that. I think what we're going to do is um, we're going to pretty quickly bring, the, bring tonight to a close. Um, and uh, the one thing I want to kind of close with is we need the fullness of the biblical story. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We have had a tendency to chop the arms off the biblical story and ignore Genesis 1 and 2 and creation and ignore Revelation 21 and 22 and the new creation and all of the implications that that has for good culture making. And if you have that, you're left with a a gospel that says fall. This world's really bad. Jesus is going to come and burn it up one day and redemption of He's going to save you and pull you out of the world instead of redeeming and renewing the world. But there's an, another way to go is to pull the heart out of the gospel story, to remove the fall and say there's no sin in the world, and to remove redemption and say there's no need for one to save you from your sins. What I would encourage you to, to do is to have a full story, not where you chop the arms off and are functionally useless in the world culturally, or where you gouge the heart out of the gospel and take away sin and a, and a redeemer, but hold it all together in one biblical story. And with that, I'm going to end this in prayer. Father, help us to live truthfully within your story, to create and cultivate culture to know that this is your world to reflect your image and and forgive us god for the the ways that we've taken your good world and we have created idols and we've harmed others we have dishonored you and destroyed your creation and damaged others and we thank you that jesus came to pay for those sins to rescue us and to restore us to be 
uh, a, a new creation and with, with him and his resurrection um, to be renewed, to be able to serve and love others and to bless and cultivate with an aim for your glory and the sake of our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen. See you guys.